Hello and welcome back. We are now on episode two on the podcast about Impressionism movement and its influence in Ireland and most particularly in music and Irish composers, which we will talk about more in part three. My name is Catherine Gagneux and this episode is kindly sponsored by the cultural section of the French Embassy in Ireland. So in the first episode, we talked about the Impressionist movement in painting with curator Anne Robbins from Musée d'Orsay. And I'm now delighted to welcome our next three guests to talk a bit more about the music side. So first, I would like to um, welcome Ingrid Nicola. So Ingrid is the violinist and founding member of Contempo Quartet, a celebrated string quartet that has become Artie's quartet in residence in 2014 and is Galway's ensemble in residence since 2003. Ingrid has won 14 international prizes in chamber music competition and she has performed over 2,000 concerts and around the world um, in about 42 countries in very prestigious places. She also was awarded in uh, June 2016 a degree of Doctor of Music by the National University of Ireland in Galway and in January 2022 she has been awarded the Knight of Merit for cultural contribution by the Romanian President Klaus Werner Lohannes in the Romanian Embassy in Dublin. We're also joined by Dr. Aidan Thompson and Aidan is the head of music at NUI Galway. He's a musicologist with a particular interest in British and Irish music of the early 20th century, particularly Edouard Elgar, Ralph von Williams and Arnold Bax and he co-edited the Cambridge Companion to von Williams and uh, wrote and presented Bax Ireland and 1916 by RT Lyric FM as part of the uh, coverage of the centenary of the Easter Rising. He is also an experienced uh, violinist um, and is also a pianist and an organist. Last but not least, I would like to introduce you to Thérèse Fahy. So Thérèse is originally from Dublin and is one of Ireland's uh, foremost pianists who enjoys an active performing and teaching career in the Royal Irish Academy in Dublin. And uh, she also performs regular recitals and concerto appearances um, in at home and throughout Europe and also in the United States and has uh, many critical acclaim um, as well as numerous broadcasts for both RT and the BBC. Therese um, is known as the only professional Irish pianist to specialise in the performance of French music. And in 2012, she toured throughout Ireland and Europe with performances of the 24 Debussy Preludes to celebrate the 150th anniversary of the composer's death. And in 2019, with the support of Music Project Award from the Art Council, um, she um, brought the festival entitled Ireland, Ireland's Dub Tombeau Debussy, uh, which uh, we will talk about later on in part three. In November 2019, Thérèse was awarded the prestigious Medal of Chevalier des Arts et des Lettres in the French Embassy in Dublin. So you're all very welcome to um, the second part and third part of this, uh, of, this, uh, of this podcast recording. And in the first part, we, we talked a lot with Anne Robbins about what Impressionism um, is and how it was actually defined in the arts in paintings. But obviously, 
Impressionism movement uh, had an influence on many other forms of arts and literature and poetry. And we would like to, I would like to understand a bit more how, how it could actually be defined uh, in music. So I know that the term of Impressionism is not necessarily the best one to use. And Debussy was not a big fan of the term itself of Impressionism. And even in 1898, he even said, I quote, I am attempting something different. Reality is in some sense what imbeciles call impressionism, just the least appropriate term possible. Okay, well, um, uh, thanks for the introduction, Catherine. Um, as far as defining impressionism in music is concerned, I'm, I'm going to quote here something that was uh, written in the History of Western Music, which is one of the core music textbooks that we use on our music degrees. Uh, where the author Donald J. Grout says, unlike earlier program music, Impressionism did not seek to express deeply felt emotion or tell a story, but to evoke a mood, a fleeting sentiment, an atmosphere. It used enigmatic titles, reminiscences of natural sounds, dance rhythms, characteristic bits of melody and the like to suggest the subject. Impressionism relied on illusion and understatement. The antithesis of the forthright, energetic, deep expressions of the romantics. So in other words, it's, that's the end of the quotation. In other words, it's about evoking a mood, if you like, evoking a snapshot, a music of the moment, if you like, an impression of an instant in time, rather than telling a story, which is, of course, what romanticism is ultimately all about. That's perhaps the big distinction. Exactly. So rather than being more into a detailed story, as you would say, it'd be more like an impression of a story being told in front of us, whether through painting or from music. And 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 what would be some of the influence that, um, again, uh, I, I, my understanding is that the influence of that movement, whether it's music or paintings or of a form of art is that nature and water and lights are very much featured in in that. So it, could we say that about music as well? Yes, we could actually. I think um, that I suppose the idea, even from from the artistic viewpoint or the art point point of view, that photography became maybe a little bit started to dominate the visual arts, so that then you know that the actual real um, reproduction of what you see was not as necessary mm -hmm. in the visual arts um, as 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 it had been before that, and I think that translated into music as well. Um, the the idea of evoking something, but at also at the same time, the music has great structure within it, and I think sometimes there is a mistaken um, idea that it is just this music that wanders around the place <laughs> <laughs> and 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 doesn't really have a you know, a really strong structure um, within it and and how it is, you know, both, you know, in, in terms of harmonic scales or in terms of of of, you know, returns of themes or even orchestrally how the um, the instruments are used, that there is a real thought put into it. And in the great works, of course, um, the structure and it comes from, you know, say somebody like Debussy, who would have been influenced by 
the previous times and he, he loved Bach and he loved Chopin and he loved mm-hmm. all of these people. Mm-hmm. And there's so much influence that came through and um, that was it became a kind of a hodgepodge of, of everything that had happened before that. Yes. So you mentioned two very important points. One is the structure and some some of the main influencers, of course. So we mentioned Debussy. So we'll go back to, to those two points. So in terms of the main protagonist, I guess, so we're, we're talking about uh, Debussy and we'll talk about him a lot during this conversation. But what other composers can we also um, um, include in, in that movement that influenced so many different part of us? We can talk about Ravel or Satie or who else can we involve? Well, Ravel, certainly. Satie, I'd say probably not, actually, because okay. in many ways he was the almost the anti-Debussy, certainly, okay. uh, certainly latterly. And uh, probably no one did more to move French music away from really? Debussy okay. than Satie, uh, actually. But Ravel, certainly. Uh, I mean, there, I think there are there are distinct, clear distinctions between Ravel and Debussy as well. Um, and I would say, and this is actually goes back to another issue about the, the nature of musical impressionism. Debussy is someone who uses decoration in a way that brings it to the fore, perhaps in a way that it hadn't been before. Uh, With earlier music, you will often have uh, clear melodies with a lot of decoration around them. With Debussy, the sense of of the decoration supporting a melody is almost turned in its head sometimes, that the the decoration itself becomes the main musical material. Not always, but sometimes. Mm -hmm. With Ravel, there is much more a sense still, I think, of of a melody which has got a decoration taking place in, in the background. And, and how they do that is, is also something that varies quite a bit. Okay, okay. And can we think of other main composers as well that um, were influenced? Again, maybe if we can step back a little bit. I mean, when we're talking about, um, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to label um, that side of music as Impressionism because I know it wasn't necessarily the, the best word to be used uh, by, uh, by a lot of the composers. But I mean, if we're looking at the time period... Um, of when that movement uh, influenced music? I mean, what kind of time period are we talking about? We're talking about the early 20th century, really. I mean, I always think that the musicians tend to be the last people to be influenced (laughs) by a movement. Um, We always seem to be, you know, coming up at the end. Um, So obviously the the Impressionist visual arts were uh, in the late 1800s and then right into the the early 1900s, right up to, I suppose, when Debussy died in 1918, um, he was, you know, he hated being called an impressionist. I mean, it really annoyed him. But yes. he was an impressionist. If you, if we're for the purposes of today, he was he was the same impressionist, you know, until ninety until he died. Yeah, I mean, for him, yeah. that was even a derogatory comment yes, because I mean, j- just to remind, I mean, we talked about it on the first part, but I mean, again, just to to, to remind ourselves a little bit how it all came about. I mean, uh, it all came about with some of the uh, painters at the time, the Manets and stuff like that. That 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 starting kind of like drawing things in a blurred with that ages. Kind of ways and then the first critics from the papers would say well what kind of an impression and I put that in inverted commas what kind of an impression is that it wasn't received with the best way and then when as you mentioned Therese um, the music started being influenced at that and and then bringing some kind of different kind of timber and colors um, then the Debussy's were labeled and say well here's another impressionist and then Debussy didn't like that at all um, but, um, so is, is anything else more to comment on that? But I mean, that's that's basically uh, uh, some of the. Um, um, so I mean, if we don't call it, if it didn't want to be called an impressionist, I mean, what would have been his best way to be, for lack of a better word, labeled, or how, or how did he consider himself, or how do composers consider themselves? 
Well, he was he was a lot of things. Um, I mean, he was a symbolist some of the time, mm-hmm. certainly uh, settings of uh, or influences of Malarmé, for instance, uh, in the Prélude de l'Après-midi d'un Faune. Um, obviously, also Pelleas et Mélisande, which is a, a, a setting of a, a symbolist uh, play by by Maeterlinck. Um, but he's also someone who at times can draw on, on classical you know, uh, forms as well, particularly in some of his late works. So he's he's someone who uh, can draw on a lot of different people. He was influenced by Wagner, um, and indeed symbolism itself is something that was influenced by Wagner and by Wagnerism. Um, he was influenced uh, arguably by Grieg, certainly by Mussorgsky. He knew Stravinsky very well. They were, they were quite close friends, and there are a number of passages in some of Stravinsky's early works that are, I would consider borderline impressionist. Yes, um, yes. And that's an important thing too, that the idea of impressionism and uh, the, the kind of impressionist sound world is something that goes well beyond France. Um, yes. You get it in, in even in composers as unlikely as Arnold Schoenberg, and you get it in a lot of British composers, most yes. notably perhaps Frederick Delius, who was based in France okay. for many years. And I suppose, like you mentioned about all the different influences and how a lot of his composers knew each other, but he actually went even beyond some of the composers. Um, a lot of them kind of, uh, well, they were in the Montparnasse Bohemian part of Paris at the time, uh, which was a very mm. popular place for artists of all kinds. And they, they would actually, we, we talked about it in the first part, but uh, a lot of them would, would actually um, spend a lot of time uh, together. So whether being Debussy or Mallarmé or, or Manet or some of the poets, and they, they would meet on on a, on a regular basis. So obviously they all influence themselves by their different uh, form of arts. So in the painting side, we, um, on the first part, we, we talked about um, uh, some of the main features and the movement of light and, and some of the main characteristics in the painting. So um, in, in your all over, on your opinion, I mean, how can you, how can we picture that? How do we see that? How do we hear that on, on the music side of things? Yes, uh, <clears throat> for me, one of the most important characteristics and features of uh, impressionistic music is the ability of this style to create an illusion. Okay. I mean, all music is the art of illusion, but I think the music of impressionistic composers probably uh, even more so. And by that, I mean that you are um, given a note and you don't really follow its direction. Okay. So uh, Daniel Barenboim, whom I... Um, uh, admire a lot, um, has a very beautiful comparison from this point of view. He looks at the music of impressionistic composers as you would look out of a window and you see a beautiful landscape, a mountain, a forest. Um, you can see it, it is real, you know it is there, but you are not actually there. You don't actually go there. Yes. Uh, so it, I think it is uh, this sort of feeling uh, out of reality uh, the world of dream, um, you know, it does exist, but you are not part of that present particular moment at that present particular uh, uh, time. Yes. And, um, of course, a part of the idea of, um, um, of uh, part of the idea of, of having an illusion, uh, persuading an illusion, uh-huh. is, um, um, <clears throat> is also very important to have a sort of uh, intimacy. Okay and secrecy and privacy. Okay. And uh, what I find um, very interesting about Debussy uh, is that he, um, as a personality, as a human being, was 
very um, private. He was a loner. Mm-hmm. Of course, he had uh, loads of, of friends, mm-hmm. but um, he was a sort of a loner more than um, a very sociable person. Okay. If we think of the way he composed his preludes for piano, he actually meant, and there is, please correct me if I'm mm-hmm. if I'm not correct, actually he meant them to be performed privately. Okay. They were meant for private performance. So Debussy is that sort of a composer, a little bit uh, secretive. Um, um, it's a kind of an intimacy. A, a lot of intimacy. And I think this sort of feeling, that atmosphere, since you are talking about the um, persuading this idea of atmosphere and mood in impressionistic music, is, um, is linked to this privacy and um, secrecy. And of course, um, there are very clear features through... Um, in what way we could um, provide this Mm -hmm. uh, feeling in music. And one of the most important is, of course, the color of the sound. Yes, yes. And, um, of course, here... Um, the Romantics would, would go for um, the monarchy of a melodic line uh-huh. that would be very, very important, the classics as well. But here, for the first time in uh, Impressionistic music, they would look for something, they would um, bring something different. For example, they would look for patches of color, uh, instrumental timbres that would bring the same uh, unique uh, attention and importance as a melodic line, for example. Okay, okay. And of course, the best example is Boleros Ravel, where you have the same tune that will will be changed harmonically, but basically sends out from the di- diversity of the tone color. You yes. have something like 18 minutes or 20 minutes of music with the same tune and you never get bored. You listen to that again and again and again. Kind of and again, and again. But it, it, it's amazing to actually um, see the, the different parallels with the music and the paintings. And, and I'm just going to read a quote from um, a friend of Debussy, uh, René Peter, um, um, where he basically explained that Debussy considered more himself as a painter rather than and a musician, he say, to judge by his work and by his title is a painter and it is what he wants to be. He calls his compositions, pictures, sketches, print, uh, arabesque, mask, studies in black and white, um, painting. It is a delight to paint in music. And I love that last sentence. It is a delight to paint in music. And I think that's what we, we can yeah, we can hear definitely. from some of your comments. And also um, the preludes, the, the 24 preludes, the two books of preludes, the titles are at the end of the piece, okay. which is really interesting. And that is because he wants that idea of evoking something rather than it being programmatic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got the, that La Cathedral, you've got all of these wonderful pieces yes. that, that he wrote in 1910 and 1913. Um, the pieces are so diverse. It is like actually walking through an art gallery. They're tw- of 24 <laughs> paintings. Wow. Um, I've played all 24 in, as, as a one full concert. And I often wondered beforehand, the first time I played it was, would people be bored? But actually, you know, they're never bored and they, they have to sit for 40 minutes for the book one, then an interval and then another 40 minutes and it flies. Wow. Um, and it's just that feeling of, of I don't know, of just being in this amazing, as 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 you say, intimate in bubble, world. Suppose, yes. yeah, yeah, you know, it's wonderful. It's almost like walking in some kind of um, uh, landscape and being in your own thoughts, I think, almost, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I know for me, whether I'm watching a painting or I'm listening to some of his music, like I'm being lost in my own thoughts. And that's a nice thing. So to go back maybe on the technicality and again, um, without getting too technical, 
Um, we, 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 we touched down about some of the, uh, the, the timber and some of the colors, the, the rhythm and tempo, the, the dynamics. So maybe if we can talk a little bit more about that, maybe, maybe from comparison to some previous periods, or maybe by illustrating um, some, uh, some of those different kind of technicalities so we all understand what, what it means. Um, so where, where, where should we start? What, from a technical point of view, I suppose, or from a musical point of view, uh, what distinguishes um, those kind of uh, music compositions from, um, from others? I think that certainly as a performer, um, which is the only from the, the only vantage point from which I can I can speak, um, you know, to play Debussy or to play Ravel um, is requires the most amazing um, virtuosity, but the virtuosity is much more subtle. So you have to have a Listian virtuosity. Your fingers have to be, I think I read somewhere where it said your fingers have to be like steel, okay. but with velvet touch. <laughs> so you have this and the idea of, you know, French music coming from the, the tradition of the clavecinists, you know, and, and Rameau and Couperin and mm-hmm, all these mm-hmm. wonderful French composers. And there's that precision of French music, particularly that um, almost in, in some ways it belies the idea of the word impressionism because there's a, there's a precision about it um, as a performer that you have to have to approach. And yet then you're 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 thinking of great big sort of sweeps of 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 of, of I don't know, nature going through shimmering colours um, so that the technique has to be under there. But you can't really it's not a display. And that's on the piano side and talking to the strings and Ingrid, then is that some kind of, is there a similar kind of approach? I mean, what would be the approach then as a string player? Yeah, I will still continue on the idea that for me, impressionistic music is very much linked to this um, idea of illusion and intimacy. So um, in in the music of Brahms or Beethoven, for example, these are the two extrovert composers I could immediately think of right now um, during breakfast time. So um, uh, I would go for a sound that, when it is needed, of course, where um, a sound that it is a little bit more open and more extrovert. Uh, I don't think this is exactly the case of Debussy. I'm going to look in Debussy or Ravel for those um, colors of the tones that are not so opened. I wouldn't like to say muffled, even though in Debussy um, we are asked to play with a mute. Okay. Um, the slow movement of the Debussy string quartet is all muted, for example. Okay. Um, uh, but uh, that sort of velvet sound. Okay. So um, I would choose, for example, now getting into the techniques of that, I would choose strings that will allow me to have uh, a mellower sound, may- maybe middle strings more than going on the open strings, uh, extrovert uh, uh, strings, something like that playing more in the um, um, uh, in the high part of the bow from middle upwards to have that flexibility um, also I think um, the rhythm in okay. uh, impressionistic music is um, is is it's uh, very you know not it's, easy it's to not to fixed. achieve it. This is the thing; it needs to be flexible all the time. It is what that sort of a rhythm that needs to move. All of that, all all the time, basically, and um, sometimes I think there are pieces uh, where you, as a listener, 
you find very, very difficult mm -hmm. to uh, remember what the meter is. Right. The, uh, the rhythm, the tempo is so robotic, moving so much, is so flexible that you forget what the meter is. And I think this is the one of the beauties of impressionistic music for me. It's always flowing. And you have these hemiolas, you have these syncopations, you have these ties that are completely uh, taking you from yes. the main beat idea that was so important in romantic music and, and I actually classicism. Find, I actually find when you just listen to some of Debussy's compositions or other composers, when you listen to it, I mean, it's very hard to tap your foot, right? I mean, you know there's a rhythm, there's a, there's a rhythm, there's a tempo, but it's not something where you would naturally tap the, the different beats as such, right? It's just something that you just float with it as opposed to to tap with it but um. the first movement of Debussy's string quartet is um is is very much uh based on this very rhythmical mm -hmm. uh flexibility and uh there are moments where in the theme is a tempo rubato and this is it you need to find a way that you can play eight um uh, eight, eight, yeah four people together yes and finding the same rubato feeling and moving and going and stepping and coming at the same time and we'll it, comment it, on that beautiful. piece yes yes it yes. is a challenge though wonderful wonderful so and if we go back again um i understand that from the keys and the scales are are, are quite played differently from other periods as well so can we demonstrate maybe some um some of those um uh, we're talking about like whole scales or pentatonic and stuff like that so you know, maybe for someone who's not necessarily a musician here, can we maybe kind of demonstrate some of us, how it would sound like and so that maybe... Uh... Well, yes, the uh, essentially most uh, romantic music before Debussy is written in major and minor scales. So major scales and minor scales, uh, those are your core scales and that's where you would generate your core chords in the major keys and uh, uh, in the minor keys. Those are what we call the primary triads and they're, they're the ones which drive towards particular cadences. Okay. That kind of sound, everything drives towards the cadence. Now, with Debussy, we start to, to see a move away from a, a systematic use of major and minor keys. We still have the same types of major and minor chords a lot of the time, but there isn't maybe always the same drive towards a, a final cadence okay. of the sort that I've just played. There's a number of reasons for this. First of all, uh, he is much more influenced by the idea of modality okay. than uh, than many composers beforehand. And that's something that actually there's already a precedent for in French music with Forêt. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also other scales that he starts to use as well. And you mentioned two of them, the pentatonic scale, which uh, is easiest, most easily thought of as the uh, the pitches of the, the black keys in the piano. So something like this. Okay. And transpositions of that. Okay. Um, and the whole tone scale. Now, the whole tone scale, the scales are made up of a mixture of tones and semitones, whole mm -hmm. steps and half steps. The whole tone scale is made up entirely of whole steps. And it sounds like this. It's the sort of thing if you put the pedal down the piano and just play all those six pitches together. Mm. It sounds almost as if you're being transported into some Something kind mysterious of almost, mysterious right? dream world. <laughs> and uh, what Debussy can quite often do is to to take the make not just one chord but a succession of chords out of the um, out of the whole tone scale. Uh, I mean, there's a, a good example of one of his uh, piano preludes, uh, Voile. Okay. Which uh, begins... Uh, I'm, 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 uh, yes, I thought so. 
which is all made up of uh, whole tone uh, scales. And, and as a result, you feel as though the sound is suspended right. because if you're not heading towards a cadence, what are you doing? You're kind of less mm. static. Mm. And that is, if you like, the quintessential Debussyan sound world. Now, I'd say it's something that is more of a Debussyan feature than, okay. than a Ravelian feature. Okay. And it's also a feature you do get in other composers as okay. well. But uh, the combination of that with the, the timbres as well is, is a very strikingly Debussyan device. So we're going to illustrate now all we've talked about with um, one of the pieces from Debussy called La Cathédrale Engloutie. Uh, but before we do that and before we listen to it and before we discuss it, um, I would like to quickly talk about Claire de Lune. Because Claire de Lune, as we all know, it's one of the most recognizable pieces from Debussy. Uh, it's still very popular nowadays. And, um, you know, we may, you know, we may think that it's also an impressionist or or influenced by an impressionist movement um, type of piece. But, but Aidan, can you talk to us a bit more about that and why we chose not to um, play that piece and, and discuss that piece? Yeah, um, Claire de Lune, of course, is a, a very beautiful work, very atmospheric work and a, a work that's played a, a, a great deal, uh, perhaps Debussy's most played uh, piano work of mm -hmm. all. It's, in some ways, it's less of an Impressionist work than uh, a sort of crossover between uh, Impressionism and Symbolism. Okay. It's a work from very early in Debussy's career. It's from a suite called Suite Bergamasque, which dates from 1890, and that's written before most of uh, Debussy's mature works. He was only 28 when he composed mm -hmm. it. It was published in 1905. Uh, he may well have made some revisions between uh, 1890 and 1905, but we're not quite sure what. What we do know is that he changed the title of this movement. What was called Claire de Lune, what's called Claire de Lune now, was originally called Promenade Sentimentale, a sentimental okay. walk. Okay, okay. So, um, Interesting. So uh, a little curious as to why he, he made the change. Um, it's uh, connected to a poem by Paul Verlaine. This mm -hmm. is where the symbolism comes in. Of course, Verlaine was the perhaps the leading symbolist poet in late right. 19th century France. And symbolism is an important part of Debussy's uh, artistic inspiration as well. Mm -hmm. uh, his opera, Pelleas Humilisante, is itself based on a, a symbolist play by Maurice uh, Maeterlinck. So it's important to remember with Debussy that there's a number of different strands to his musical personality. And with Claire de Lune, what I hear is something that is... Uh, Uh, if you like, a, a maturing work okay. of a fairly, still a fairly young composer, because there's elements of it that is certainly anticipating the impressionism of, say, the preludes, but also elements that are looking back into the past as well. Um, what are these? Well, there's a passage in the in the middle of Claire de Lune, um, which uh, in fact is is marked uh un poco mosso un poco mosso um so uh, a little uh, uh, a little movement mm -hmm. um which has got some of the the parallel chords in it that we tend to associate more with his impressionist works and mm -hmm. these uh, these are uh, sequences of chords that perhaps in some cases would break conventional mm -hmm. harmonic voice-leading rules, uh, focusing more on sonority. Okay. And that's an important part of what Impressionism is about. On the other hand, the very beginning of the work uh, is 
harmonically fairly conventional. It's, it's mm-hmm. got the standard chromatic harmony of the 19th century. If the texture and the melody were different, you could imagine such a, a progression uh, appearing even in the works of someone like Chopin. Yes. So uh, in that respect, it's less distinctively impressionist it's, and perhaps more romantic. It's not as obvious, I suppose, right? So we get elements of it, but not enough to call it really a true, as we want to call it, inverted commas, impressionist type of piece, I suppose. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't have the the same very distinctive harmonic language mm-hmm. of uh voile or la cathedrale l'engloutie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't mm-hmm. have uh, whole tone scales or, or anything yes, like yes, that. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Very good. So in 1909-1910, Debussy wrote a series of 12 preludes for piano, including the Sermage Cathedral. Um, it illustrates the rise of the cathedral from the waters and its subsequent return then to this death, um, all during which we can hear bells chiming, praise chanting and organs playing in the background. So um, Debussy wrote this piece inspired by an ancient um, Breton legend of Is, and Is is spelled with a Y, and Is is located in the bay of Douarnenez. So in the legend, um, Is is depicted with beautiful buildings and gardens and and with very luxurious um, upbringing and very luxurious background, I suppose, but it's also very very vulnerable to flooding. So the story goes on with the daughter of the very religious king, um, Gradlon, and and she's organising a secret party for her lover. But then towards the end of the party, being both drunk, um, by mistake, they open the gates of the dike, which then leads to the flooding of East. And um, sadly, the princess cannot be saved and turns into a mermaid, according to the legend. And then the king takes then refuge in Quimper, uh, still in Brittany, which becomes then the new capital. So if we think about it, then the story is about people being punished for their sins. And hence the cathedral is only allowed to emerge um, at sunrise and then slowly gets engulfed by the sea. And according to local uh, legend and folklore, they recount that the sound of a bell can still be heard um, from the waters of the bay. And um, this is pretty much what gave inspiration by um, to Debussy to write this prelude. So we're now going to listen and comment on that piece. And I would like to make a, a very special note um, about the recording itself that we're going to listen to, because that recording is played by Debussy himself. So in this very much introduction, we can hear the cathedral gently emerging. So please feel free to to comment on that. But again, going back to uh, the legend. Um, well, I think it's worth remembering here, of course, that as an impressionist work, as an impressionist impression, if you like, what we're getting yes. is the snapshot rather than the story a lot yes. of the time. So. If you like, it's it's not that we're hearing the story taking place, but we're hearing these different elements all taking place almost simultaneously. Okay. But and going, it's going still very calm at the very beginning. Oh yes, and also the the very beginning, the opening melody uh, in the piano is based on the pentatonic scale. So there's your example of a yes, pentatonic scale. Perfect. The chords have a parallel motion as well. This wouldn't be something that you would hear 
In classicism or romanticism, I think if you would go with a homework with parallel motion and show it to Haydn, you'll definitely yes. fail. <laughs> and you can actually hear the water here as well. And Debussy had an obsession with water. I mean, La Mer and, you know, <coughs> Reflet dans l'eau, Poisson d'or. There's so many pieces that he wrote based sure, on sure water. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But this is amazing to actually hear Debussy's own playing. This is um, a piano roll. Um, piano roll was put in the, the actual paper was put into the an upright piano where you would see the the music you know the score and it was looked like a, a piece of wallpaper and you would the, the performer would actually perforate the wallpaper with their playing and then that becomes the reproduction for um, future um, but actually it was considered more successful at the time than the early gramophone recordings and you can hear it's pretty clear and we can hear the bells now a bit more and they're they're forty now. We could hear them a little yeah. bit a bit more muffled, but now they're in their full glory emerge, I guess. This huh? moment for me with uh, when you hear the Bourdon, that big bell is really, really emotional. It's mm-hmm. you can I get easily overwhelmed by this moment. It's so beautiful. Yes. And the the bass as well. I mean, there's one very characteristic is that it's the, the kind of playing between the the different edges of the piano, between the bass and the higher notes as well. Mm. So it's really it really marks the contrast and the the vast um, the vastness, I suppose. Of Actually, I was just asking Therese this morning if, um, in order to get uh, the Bourdon sound, you need to use the sostenuto pedal, Middle the sustaining pedal. pedal mm-hmm. which we just, we, yes. Yeah, we just had that chat, yeah. that pedal that allows you to um, uh, basically sustains the sound and the, the note still rings while you're playing. Yeah, it, it actually, the, the middle pedal um, sustains certain notes and then leaves clarity for other notes. Um, but actually, Debussy didn't have this pedal. And even though we do nowadays, I still don't use it when I play this section because I actually love the whoosh of sound yes. and, the, and the, the reverberation. And in fact, on, on this recording, you can't really hear the low C. Possibly he didn't have a great piano when he was doing uh-huh. this. Um, but you, it really needs to sound like, you know, I don't know, the base of the lake um, where, you know, this huge sound coming through. Um Yeah, it's a wonderful piece. Beautiful. And between the emergence and then towards the end, then, you know what I mean, the, the dramatic kind of way the water then takes the cathedral back again in, into the waters and, and against the bells. Um, I, I like towards the end the fact that it's it's getting more mystic to, to put some... It's almost a ghost, a ghost yes. version of the... I, I always try, when I play this, I always try to play it so, so quietly like you can hear it in the back of your head that you can and that you imagine that you hear it rather than it's there if you know it's hard to do but it's what I aim for <laughs> yes yes and there's a stillness as well in, in the playing as well that is very again that marks all the the dramatic side yes and of course those stone colors that we have been talking about are not only done I, I believe by instrumental timbres but also by the dynamics themselves and I think in the music of Debussy and Ravel I have seen the <laughs> many many times maybe the most so many very quiet yes. mm-hmm. uh, places piano pianissimo mm-hmm. triple P's you just have to do them they create a very special atmosphere uh, again that would bring the listeners and the performers to that intimacy yes. secretive very private feeling and we can hear it now 
Like it's towards the end, isn't it? That's it, yeah. Yes. And the last ripple, I suppose. And we don't hear the organs anymore. <laughs> Perfect. So that, that was beautiful, um, a beautiful piece on, on the Cathedral Anglutie, which was a perfect way to illustrate what we were talking about. Um, I, I would suggest not to move down to uh, another piece um, that uh, you, you brought for us as well, Thérèse, um, an, another one from Debussy, and it's called Reflet, uh, Reflet dans l'eau. And, um, and again, um, if we can actually maybe talk a little bit about that piece before we, we play it and comment on it. Yes, this is um, a recording actually of a concert I did in Galway. Um, I think Aidan was there. Um, and <laughs> it was the year of 2018, the, the year of the anniversary of his death. And uh, Ruffley Don Lo is the first piece in the first book of Image and its reflections in the water. And I think the word reflet can mean reflection as in mirror reflection. Mm -hmm. And you can see when you look at the score, you can actually see the, the you know, the, is it palindromes? We, we use the word um, that it's actually a visual palindrome. And but also so there's that idea of reflection and of course, reflection in the idea of meditation or mm -hmm, cont mm -hmm. contemplation on. And I do feel that this is the most amazing study of what water is. You've got little raindrops, you've got a lake, you've got, I think, a tsunami, maybe, or an ocean or something at the end. It's just everything that water can do um, the whole way through the piece. It's it's just beautiful. And again, the virtuosity that is needed to play it and that those steel to, to really, I suppose he wanted clarity as well. So there's that sense of, of the steel fingertips mm -hmm. and, you know, regardless of this idea of, of mushiness as well, which I kill my <laughs> students over um, <laughs> mushy, mushy yes, to be yes. playing. <laughs> um, so, um, yes, it's it's OK, so we'll we'll play it now. So we're back on the water and and again what we listened to earlier on with the Cathedral Anglutie again some kind of a similar way of um, of hearing the water I suppose. Mm. It's so wonderful the way he uses register as well so you've got the lower register and then you've got the little raindrops coming down there through yes. the, the top. It, would it be quite similar to Ravel's um, Do? No. Uh, well, yes, I suppose. But Ravel, I think Ravel is a much more, um, the, the sound that you need for Ravel is a much more, slightly more metallic. Okay. More mechanical, in meta fact. Yeah, more really? mechanical. Yes. Mm. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I always say that I have to have different hands for every composer. Okay. My hands feel different when I play different composers. So um, Ravel is m much more clear, um, which, yeah, it's hard to describe him. Ravel was someone who, who liked things like musical boxes, things that could play uh, fast musical gestures in a repeated way. And you, yes. you, you find, uh, the way I would describe Ravel is it's like looking at a mosaic 
okay. where you've got lots of tiny little pieces put that are all, all put together. Whereas Debussy, it's more of a, a kind of a painter's palette where the, the colours are kind of flowing into each other. So that, I think, is where you get the kind of the harder sound, mm. perhaps, sometimes yeah. with, with uh, Ravel, of uh, a lot of precision of very fast-moving short notes. Um, you still get that precision mm. with Debussy, but uh, it, it somehow seems less apparent. And again, in that piece, we can hear some of the new tone colours that, that Debussy has put together. And a bit in the way you were explaining Cascades it. Cascades and, and the harmony, actually. You can hear it, your, your, uh, your whole tones and your pentatonics the whole way through. And there he takes the opening theme again and he treats it differently. Yes. And you can hear it's, it's much more contemplative after all the shimmering that we've just had, the Cascades. And again, we, we can hear that kind of um, impression of vast space that, that is putting mm. into into the piece really to 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 give the audience or to give this, us um, this, is, this is i think this is where the ocean is beginning i can just yes. see a vast ocean here a vast ocean yeah. yes yes and then you've got this lovely and i think also he thinks orchestrally so can i that little theme there i could just imagine on a flute for example um so he's thinking orchestrally the piano becomes an, an orchestra And that actually also, there's even little moments of, I always think that little bit is a little bit like Rachmaninoff, you know, there's yes. a tiny um, touch. I think they were so influenced by all the piano composers around. You know, yes. It sounds very experimental as well. So we've just listened and commented on the piece Reflet dans l'eau and to know that this was a live recording from a performance recital performed by Thérèse Fahy at the Aula Maxima in Galway in October 2018.